Have you ever wondered why God bothers to work through mankind to accomplish his purpose? God has all the power he wants to do anything he wishes without anyone else getting involved. That much is clear. He made the entire universe by speaking it into existence with just words. And the Bible says he holds it together even now by the power of his word. So why does he bother partnering with weak, sinful human flesh? What's the point? And clearly, whatever the answer to that question is, it cannot be that we bring something useful to the equation. That can't be the reason why he works with us, because you and I aren't invited into God's work in order to improve the outcome of that work. Quite the contrary. God invites us to join him at work so that he can improve us. That's the point. And that's exactly what he's doing with Gideon. We know the Lord is working to free Israel from the Midianites. He declared as much earlier in this book. And in fact, that's been the cycle we've observed throughout the whole of the book of Judges. There's always that that cycle of Israel failing, God punishing, the people repenting, ultimately the Lord rescuing them. So we know a rescue must be coming. We're at that point in the cycle. But you also know the people of Israel have become increasingly weak spiritually, and they're not well equipped at this point to hear the Lord, follow the Lord, to do anything the Lord has asked them to do. So now we're interested to see how is the Lord going to free Israel through such a weak people as we see today, especially knowing he doesn't need them. He can do it all his own. So to this point in the story, what he's done is he's chosen a fairly weak hero, a wavering kind of sort. As we saw last week, he's unaccustomed to hearing the Lord's voice. And therefore, when the Lord spoke to Gideon, he was unsure it was the Lord in the first place. Asked for a a sign, he got the sign. And then when he was sure that he knew who he was talking to, well, then he doubted the Lord's commitment to do as he says. So he demanded another sign. And then when he got the sign, he doubted the Lord's sincerity. So he asked for a second confirmation of that sign. I mean, he's about as weak a follower as you can find in all of the Bible, frankly. And I know we hold Gideon up as a hero. Certainly the book of Hebrews does. And and rightly so. We're not diminishing what he accomplishes. But let's not also gild who he was in the beginning. This is a man of weak faith. And yet the Lord's endeavoring to work through him. Knowing the Lord doesn't need him. So that should draw our attention to the question of the morning. Why does the Lord want to work through Gideon? Or maybe put it more simply, why does he need Gideon? Well, as you can see, it's actually Gideon that needs the Lord. He needs to learn how to hear. He needs to learn how to trust. He needs to learn how to obey. He needs to recognize that the Lord's word can be trusted. He has to understand that the Lord has the power to do what he said he's going to do. And friends, if you're hearing things that sound familiar to you, then perhaps you could take the word Gideon out of all of that and put your own name in there and and see the same opportunities. And Gideon's success does not depend on his own strength. And yet that's where he seems to be right now. He seems to be centered on this thought that apart from his own strength, he has no hope. Apart from his own understanding, he'll never do the job well. And it's that fear, it's that self-doubt maybe more than anything else, that has left him in this place that we find him, a place in which he is not willing to walk with the Lord, at least not without plenty of encouragement. So if the Lord's going to demonstrate these things to Gideon, that he can trust, he can believe, he can follow, if the Lord is going to teach his servant Gideon, how do you think he's going to best accomplish that goal? How do you think the Lord would teach a man like Gideon to do the very things that Gideon doesn't seem to be capable of doing? 
I mean, wouldn't you expect the Lord to put Gideon in situations where his weak faith might be strengthened? Isn't that the natural thing you'd expect? Shouldn't you expect the Lord to expose the error of Gideon's fearful thinking? To, to, to expose the weaknesses that he has so that he can see them for himself? And then through all of those circumstances, wouldn't you expect the Lord then to teach him to trust without reservation, without doubt, by giving him new opportunities to show that trust. That's exactly what he intends to do. He intends to take this guy and put him through a little laboratory experiment and show him something about himself. Remember at the end of chapter 6, last time I was here, that the Midianites, the raiders coming from the east, they were massing their army to come down into the land and do their annual tradition of taking everything that Israel had to offer. And they've crossed over the eastern border from present-day Jordan into the northern part of Israel, northern part of Canaan. And this is the year the Lord has decided will be the last year they will mass in this way. And he is going to call Gideon to lead the defense of Israel against this marauding army. And so Gideon begins to recruit at the start of chapter 7 the army from Israel who's going to fight with him in this battle that the Lord has called him to win. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned. But 10,000 remained. So we're told the one who contends with Baal, that is the name Jerebobel, the one who mows down adversaries, that is the name Gideon, is assembling an army in northern Canaan in the Jezreel Valley. Now the camp of the enemy by this point has crossed the Jordan. They've come from the east, crossing over into the west, and they've left their home territory of principally Ammon and Moab, and now they reside in northern Canaan. They're staging, if you will, like an army will often do before a battle. You bring all your forces to a central location. You get organized. You, you, you plan the battle. You put them in their proper array, and then you march out from there. And in this case, of course, they're riding camels, as we learned last time, which is one of the ways in which they were so effective at doing what they did. And they're in an area of the Jezreel Valley near the hill of Moray, we're, we're told. Now, from this position... What they would do is they would proceed southward by means of a series of valleys that extend from the Jezreel Valley all the way through the central part of Canaan. Literally, through the full length of Israel, they would be able to proceed by way of these valleys. Every major settlement in the land would be vulnerable to their marauding as they transcend down from north to south. All that stands between them and the people of Israel is Gideon's fledgling army, facing them from the southern position of the Jezreel Valley. And we learn in verse 3, that Gideon has succeeded in recruiting 32,000 men into his army. Now, that number sounds impressive. In fact, for a guy like Gideon, who's not exactly Patton, you have to think this is pretty good. You've got 32,000 people who think enough of you that they're willing to put their lives on the line to defend their nation. Of course, you remember last time we said the Midianites, they have 135,000 troops amassed in the Jezreel Valley. So, friends, what we're learning is Gideon is outnumbered four to one in what he's facing. And then, don't forget, of course, the Midianites are riding camels, which Israel does not have. And the Midianites are experienced fighters, while Israel has no standing army or experience. And so 
really, by any reasonable assessment, Israel is at a significant disadvantage in this coming battle, right? But you're not worried about that. I mean, after all, we know that the Lord is on the side of Israel, right? There's really no harm here to be worried about. So even though the numbers aren't very reassuring, we know that the Lord's going to win this battle anyway, right? Okay, if so, then why in verse 2 does the Lord declare to Gideon that he has too many men for this battle? The Lord says that the people of Israel might be inclined to see any resulting victory as a consequence of their own strength, of their own hands. And, of course, if they come to that conclusion, then they're going to miss the point of what the Lord was doing. Moreover, they're going to deny the Lord the glory that he would deserve for what he's accomplishing, right? Well, but wait a minute. We already said the odds are already stacked against Gideon, significantly so. If his ragtag army of 32,000 volunteers happens to defeat 135,000 experienced, hardened warriors on camels, well then, certainly the Lord is going to receive the credit for that, the glory for that, don't you think? I mean, in fact, historically, the Lord had allowed Joshua to win battles with even stronger odds than he's giving Gideon here. And he didn't tell Joshua, you got to whittle your army down to nothing, did he? And later you're going to see the armies of David defeating others with even more impressive numbers. In other words, if you see what's happening here strictly as God needs to have small numbers in order to show his strength, well, there's a biblical truth in that, but it doesn't explain what he's doing here because at other times he doesn't make it quite so pronounced. And it's already at the point that a four to one odds would reflect God's strength. The Lord is not opposed to winning with strong armies, but for some reason in this case, Israel's army is still too strong. We need to figure out why. So the Lord instructs Gideon, whittle down your army, and then he tells Gideon exactly how he wants that whittling to be done. He says to Gideon, I want you to release from service all those men who are fearful and trembling at the notion of going into this fight. Now, again, if you think about it logically, you might assume every single one of those 32,000 was fearful. In fact, if you're not fearful about going into this battle, you're either completely unaware about what's to happen or you're an idiot because you're going against a hardened army with a very small force. You're naturally going to be fearful. Obviously, though, some men are more prone to fear than others and particularly prone to fear in such a way that it would allow their fear to control them and lead them, as it says here, to tremble. I mean, there's a big difference between feeling the natural fear of the situation and being so consumed by it that it impedes your ability to function. That's the distinction that's being made here. And in releasing them, the Lord's actually keeping his own law. Because in Deuteronomy 20, it says that Israel could not force fearful men into battle, but should offer them the opportunity to return home. And that's what's happening here. So as he follows the Lord's instructions, he loses nearly 70% of his army, leaving only 10,000 men. Now he's outnumbered 13 to 1 against this force that he's about to face. Now surely 13 to 1 are odds that are sufficiently long enough to ensure that God gets the credit when Israel wins the battle. Yeah, not so much. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. He shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you. He shall not go. Let's stop there for a minute. Let's understand what the Lord is doing if we can. The Lord says to Gideon, you have to go 
to even fewer numbers. In fact, the Lord's about to reduce Gideon's army to a ridiculously small level. Okay? Now, remember, Gideon's already working with a skeleton group. And the Lord is capable of winning with one or zero or a million. It doesn't really matter, right? And he does win with more in other circumstances. So why is he asking Gideon to make his army so pitiful? We can only assume he has some purpose here. Well, we begin to get our answer to that question in the next part of the story. And he starts by telling Gideon, I want you to take your troops down to the water. And specifically, these are the springs of Ian Herod. And then he says, I want you to test them there, the Lord says. Now, in the course of this test, what he says is going to happen is, I'm going to point out to you who you keep, and I'm going to point out to you who you dismiss. In other words, I'm going to choose my own army for you. And what standard do you think the Lord's going to use for the way he chooses these men? Well, if we imagine it, for example, we might say, well, he's going to apply a test of strength. Wouldn't that make sense? I'm going to keep the strongest guys. Or, or perhaps it's a, it's a test of faith. Perhaps it's a, a test of their, of their faithfulness or spiritual strength. Or maybe it's their bravery or their warfare skills. I mean, we can imagine a number of different ways you would sort out this 10,000 so that you get a small number and the Lord picks the guys that he really wants. But as you might know, if you've read the story, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't focus on those things. He uses this curious, almost nonsensical test for getting down to the number he wants. Verses 5 through 8. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands, so let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So the test here examines the way men drink from the water of the spring. The Lord says those who drink water in a conventional manner will be separated from those who drink in an unconventional manner. When you don't have a cup or a canteen, with you from which to draw water. The natural way for you to drink when you come to a brook that, you know, water on the ground, you know, below you, is to kneel down next to the water and to put your whole mouth into the stream and drink out of the stream. Maybe with a maybe by putting the water into a hand into your hands first, but you just drink it like you're drinking out of a cup. That's the conventional way. And in fact, if you don't believe me, go in one of these little camps with kids, watch how they drink water. Right? They get their face right down in the water. That's the easiest way to get to the water. You might even go a step further. You might wade out into the water if you don't mind getting wet and get your face a little closer. But God says there are going to be some men who are going to choose to drink their water a little differently. They're going to laugh at the water with their tongues, perhaps cupping the water in their hands. But in either case, they're not going to do this like that. Who drinks like that? In verse six, the Lord describes the process of lapping as lapping like dogs. Now, some have suggested and I don't want to take time to go through all of the theories that are out there because so many of them are, are a waste of time. But some have suggested that this was a tactic to maintain situational awareness in their surroundings. That, in other words, by lapping the water this way, a person could keep their eyes out on the horizon. And in that way, they'd be wise, in a sense, because they're maintaining vigilance against an enemy's attack. All right, well, first of all, they know where the enemy is. 
We see that at the end of the passage I just read. They're, they're above a valley in which they can see clearly 135,000 men gathered. They're not going to be surprised by these guys. Okay, So that theory doesn't make any sense on its face. But secondly, it misses the whole point of what God is trying to do here by assigning some kind of rational, reasonable explanation for the behavior rather than what is actually intended to be unreasonable, relatively irrational behavior. These people are drinking in the weird way, not in a sensible way. And that's the whole point. In fact, the clearest example, the clearest detail in the story to tell us that this is not meant to be a compliment for these people is the very fact that they are compared to dogs. In Jewish culture, the lowest animal in their culture was not the pig, as much as they despised pigs. The lowest animal in the culture was the dog. And you can see this for yourself if you remember that when the Jews wanted to cast an insult against someone, particularly, for example, like the Gentiles, they did not call them pigs. They called them dogs. Israel called Gentiles dogs. Even scripture, by the way, uses the term dog to mean the most ungodly of people. For example, speaking of those who will find their way into the lake of fire at the end of this age, Revelation 22:15 says this, outside, meaning outside the city of New Jerusalem, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Further proof that poodles will not be present in the New Jerusalem. Can I get an amen? Dogs. So the point is, if you specifically refer to someone as drinking like a dog, in later generations, when the children of Israel came to this story in Judges and read about this moment in Gideon's life and heard that the Lord compared these men to dogs in the way they drank, those people of Israel would have interpreted this comment as the worst possible comparison God could have made. They would not have come away with any sense, oh, how wise, how tactically smart, how sensible. They're thinking, dogs, these guys are the worst. And God picks them. That's how you have to understand it. These are not savvy warriors. These are the least of the men. So out of Gideon's 10,000 men, the vast majority, as you would expect, choose to drink water from a brook in the conventional manner. But 300 guys decided that lapping like a dog was the most efficient way to get water into their mouth. The Lord says, those are the guys that are on your team, Gideon. It's like you're picking for kickball and you get 300 last picks. That's what he just did. Apparently you've been picked last. And even the fact that this is a perfect number in the sense of 300, three being the number in Scripture for God, the wholeness of God, even that number, the perfectness of it, right? It's not 299, it's not 301. You don't get to that number by chance. It shows in itself the sovereignty and the providence of God, that God is at work doing this, creating this number. So now, thanks to the Lord's effort, Gideon's army is outnumbered 450 to 1. And as the Lord declared, this is the number that he guarantees will bring credit to himself once the victory is won. And, of course, he guarantees that victory is coming. Now, had this victory been won by 10,000 men or even by the 32,000 he started with, we would still have every reason in the world to credit God with this victory. Obviously, now you have this ridiculously small force, and that only serves to reinforce the truth. I get that. But my point is, the reduction in force in and of itself 
isn't merely a matter of increasing the degree of difficulty for God. There is no degree of difficulty. It doesn't matter how many he has. He could do it with none. Later, when he defeats the Assyrians, he goes out only by himself as the angel of the Lord and he kills them all overnight. So we're not making it harder for God. We're not doing anything more to to amplify his glory. It'll be glorious regardless of how many people are on the side of Gideon. There has to be something else at work in what God is doing here by reducing the number so much. And you see it in this passage. Notice God's first step of diminishing the army centered on removing those who were fearful. Fearful. God indicating that fear has no part in following the Lord to victory. And then notice, when the Lord told Gideon to remove those who drank in a conventional way, who drank water the natural way, he's saying, get rid of those who think and act in conventional ways according to man's normal tendencies. In other words, leave behind those who are fearful, leave behind those who rely on human convention, and the ones you'll have will be the weak, the despised, and those who aren't like the world. The message the Lord is sending is starting to become pretty clear, isn't it? The message is, those who wish to serve the Lord and see victory, you can't serve in fear. You have to be willing to set aside conventions about success and strength. And then the Lord will do impossible things in only the way that he can. And he'll do it through the kind of person you don't expect him to do it with. He's saying when you rely on human standards, when you rely on what you think is best, when you operate in fear, effectively you're pushing the Lord off the throne. And then the Lord constructs this impossibly small force to expose the weakness in Gideon's faith. And the weakness in Gideon's faith is centered primarily on living in fear. Living in fear. Look what he's done. He's taken Gideon's army down to the point where Gideon can't help but experience fear. This guy must be terrified at this point. Even the bravest man would have felt the pressure of this moment and have looked at the army that God had left him with and would have felt some concern, wouldn't you agree? I don't care who you are, Patton wouldn't have felt much better than than Gideon at this point. And therefore, even the most faithful follower of God would have begun to doubt in his ability to win a war under these circumstances. But the fear that Gideon is feeling is completely unnecessary when you remember that the Lord could have defeated Midianites with no one by himself. The size of the army is completely irrelevant to the outcome. He is systematically diminishing the army down to the point that it triggers Gideon's fear so that he can teach Gideon to put his fear aside. If God's people allow fear to guide our choices for when and how we serve the Lord, what we're going to find is we're going to spend a lot less time following the Lord and a lot more time worrying. That's going to be the outcome of letting fear drive your walk. If you can decide what God can accomplish based only on human convention or on your personal abilities, then you're never going to see miracles. Because that's when miracles show up, right? Miracles show up when we don't have what it takes to do what God calls us to do. And remember, Gideon was ready to turn this down. He was ready to turn down the opportunity to serve God. Why? Because he says, I'm the least in the least of the clans. In other words, I don't have what it takes to do this. I don't have the right pedigree. Gideon was so afraid to follow the Lord into battle that he kept asking for sign after sign after sign. Think what he would have missed. Think what he would never have experienced if the Lord had not addressed those things and moved him forward on that path. Spiritual maturity requires that we move beyond seeing our weaknesses as barriers for God. Who are we to say what God is capable of doing? 
Or what odds are you going to face in ministry or in life and in general that are beyond his ability to, to cover? And what opportunities are you going to miss because you think that there's something missing in the equation that you can't then go do what God has asked you to do? I don't have enough money. I haven't saved enough. My kids aren't old enough. I don't have this in place or that in place. Well, when will you? Assuming you're walking with the Lord, assuming you're hearing him and you're answering his call, then you can be sure he will show up and win the battles you face when the time is, is right. But if that's the kind of walk you want, you know, the walks that you might see others showing, the ones that we're envious of sometimes, if that's what you want, then you have to be prepared to see the Lord expose and test the weaknesses that are standing in your way, because that's the only way you get there. The Lord reduced Gideon's number to the point where it exposed a crisis of faith in Gideon's life. It caused him to have to consider, what am I willing to trust God with? And then he had to face his fear. And then he had to realize that that fear had been a barrier to his faithful service. And whatever stands in your way to serve God, it has to be exposed as well or you'll never get past it. So the irony is, if you're fearful, he has to make you feel afraid. If you're selfish and greedy, he needs to make you feel wanting. If you have a lack of compassion, he needs to put you into circumstances where you understand the need for compassion. Those things expose a weakness that then he can rectify by what he can teach. So in the face of his fear, look what Gideon hears in verse 7. He's just seen his army reduced to the 300, really the 300 weakest, most miserable guys he probably had. And then in verse 7, the Lord says, okay, now I'm ready to deliver the Midianites into your hands. He doesn't say to Gideon, okay, now you're ready to beat them. Self-evidently, he knew he wasn't. He says, you're ready to be delivered into victory by God's hands. I'd love to have seen the expression on the 300 men. We always think about Gideon, but I'd love to think about the other guys first. What do you think the 300 guys were thinking as they stood around and they looked at who the A-team was? Right? After they watched the other guys leave, and to say nothing of Gideon himself, right? I'm sure every one of those guys was trying to put on a brave face. We, we got this. We got it. And then to make matters worse, in verse 8, they can see from where they are the entire camp of Midian. The Jezreel Valley was a spectacular site. It's surrounded by these five high peaks, one of which is the Hill of Moray. And from each peak, you have this spectacular view of a wide open plain. It's just beautiful. You can see forever. Imagine in this wide open space, this army of 135,000 men with their camels and their tents. They must have almost filled that valley. And then you can imagine 300 miserable little guys up on the hillside overlooking one of the, that, that valley, on one of the peaks overlooking the valley. What's going on in their hearts? And once again, the answer has to be fear. So to reassure them, the Lord extends his grace. Verse 9. Now that same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hands. You get the sense they're not moving very fast, don't you? Verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened, that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Let's pause there. Notice the Lord says to Gideon, Go into battle, but then he qualifies the command and he says, I don't want you to go into service if you're going with a fearful spirit right now, Gideon. The emotion of fear is holding you back and I don't want you to go under that emotion. Friends, fear is highly rational. It's highly rational. The emotion of fear is not an irrational response to circumstances. Fear says something about what you believe about a set of circumstances. 
Fear means you have considered the possibilities to some extent and you have concluded that the worst case scenario is a reasonable expectation. And with that thought, fear then follows. For example, you might hear a strange noise while you're lying in bed some night. And you could conclude that it's just the sound of the house settling. You know, it's an animal running across the roof. You could make that conclusion. Or you could assume that a thief has entered your home and is preparing to enter your bedroom and attack you. You could have either thought. One assumption will let you fall back asleep easily. And another assumption will leave you in a breathless panic, fearing what follows. Now, if you experience the fearful one of those two, then you know you have determined in your mind that the thief explanation is the more likely possibility. That's the only rational explanation for why you're experiencing fear to completely unknown and, frankly, less likely possibility of the two. But if you're afraid, it's because you made a judgment. Fear is based on considered assumptions, however unlikely they may be. It is not raw irrational emotion. So when you fear in the face of God's call, then you're saying something about your view of God. And you're saying something about your trust or lack thereof in his power and in his goodness. For example, if you fear what may happen to a son or or a daughter who is sent into mission work, then you are demonstrating a lack of confidence in God's ability to care for them no matter what they face. Or you're indicting God's wisdom and purpose should he decide to allow them to experience some kind of difficulty. Because either way, you're indicting either his sovereignty or his goodness, one way or the other. You're certainly not trusting. That's why fear in the Bible is portrayed as a sin in your relationship with the Lord. I think it's often the case in the Western mindset that fear doesn't enter into our list of sins. We think about many different ways in which you sin. Fear rarely makes the list. From an Eastern tradition, though, fear has always been included in the list of sins because it's evident in Scripture. And that's why the Lord's been working in in Gideon's life here to expose the fear of his life because it's impeding his walk with the Lord. He wants him to walk in confidence. Now, remember, friends, there's a difference between having the anxious nervousness that's normal in everyday experiences, like fighting a big army with 300 guys. You're not going to waltz into that like it's just another day in the park. We get that. But that's different. That's different than the kind of fear that he's experiencing. The kind of fear he's experiencing intellectually is one that doubts the Lord's ability to do what the Lord has said he will do. That's the point. I have to believe that Joshua was fearful when they entered battle, if he's a normal, everyday human being. But he went forward in confidence. That's the difference. Now, having said that, the Lord is not without mercy. And so he sees his servant fearful and doubting. And so he makes accommodation. He says, if you fear, then tell you what, why don't you sneak down into the camp of the Midianites, take your servant Pura with you. And then he says, go down there and and have a listen. I love the way that he sends a friend with Gideon. Did you pick up on that? I mean, Pura is not important to the details here. He's just another one of the 300. Why take Pura with you? Well, because the Lord knew that when you're afraid, There's strength in numbers. I mean, having a friend with you makes a big difference when you're fearing something, right? Even in that little detail, you see the grace of God. The Lord promises when you go down into the camp, you're going to hear something. doesn't tell them what it is. And when you hear this thing, it's going to cause you to have this strengthened confidence in what I'm about to do. Now, what could they possibly hear in the camp of the enemy that's going to lead them to think that they have more reason to trust God 
But the only thing I can imagine they might hear would be a report that exactly 134,700 of the Midianites are about to go on vacation. That's about the only thing that would give me confidence that 300 people could have a chance at this battle. But we're going to learn next week what it is they're going to hear, of course. But, friends, even now you can see God's lesson to Gideon playing out, can't you? You can see the Lord delivering a message of courage through the mouths of the enemy. Why? Because it's going to be proof. Think about it. If the mouths of the enemy can deliver a message of encouragement, is that not clear evidence of God's sovereignty and his power and his control over the circumstances? If he can deliver an encouraging message from the enemy to you, then it's not just what you hear that's going to inspire you. The very fact that he's brought it in that way is going to leave you remembering God's in such control here that he can speak through them. Well, then certainly he can defeat them. And the fact that I have only 300 is just a footnote to the story. No matter what God calls us to do, he can make successful if that's his desire. What he doesn't want us to do is follow him in the kind of doubt that fear implies using conventional methods and human intellect in place of a pure trust in his supernatural sovereign power to accomplish his will. Because when you set those limits on God, you don't do anything. It's often the case in my experience that a Christian says they follow God and they want to do as he calls them to do. But because of fear or the natural constraints of what's within their own power to accomplish, they end up doing nothing. They just sit still talking about doing stuff. The radical people who serve Christ are the people who trust in his power and give little thought to their limitations. And listen, let's go to the Lord as we consider what that means in our own life. Heavenly Father, Father, I pray for those in this room or who have listened to this at a later day, Father, that um, if they have fear in their life, if, they, if their life is often one of doubts and second-guessing, that you would help expose those things in the way that you do, Father, in love and in, in a desire to correct. Let us see the mistakes of our fear. Let us see how it holds us back. Father, show us how you can overcome it. And Father, if it requires taking our forces, so to speak, down to such pitiful numbers that, that it uh, leaves us all alone even, that's, that's okay, Father. We'll, we'll understand that if, if it helps us get past these barriers to serving you. And help us, Father, look past the conventions of what the world says define success. Let us find the 300 amongst the 10,000 who, who don't rely on the world's methods or the world's logic, who are weak but confident in you. For, Father, that's who we want to be. You deserve the glory. We want to be in a position in which the glory is all yours, Father, but you desire to work through men, though you don't need us, and we want to be those you'd work through. So let the story of Gideon be something, Father, that lets us consider our own circumstances in a new way and with a heart to obey. Use this for mighty things, Father, because there's a lot of mighty work that needs to be done. We know that. There's a world around us that doesn't know you. There's a city right here that seems determined to be ungodly and, and, and do it in increasingly uh, desperate ways. And, Father, yet you can save anyone. You can pull them out of who they, of where they are and what they're doing in an instant. You can transform their life as you've done for us. You can bring it through a soft word. You can deliver the message in a million ways. And we just want you to use us, Father, for that purpose. Let us, let us find a person or a 
or some audience this week that will listen to the Word of God with us, that will listen to the Gospel as we present it, that will ask us the right questions so that we can answer it with the right answer. And uh, let us not have fear, Father, that when we speak we'll be condemned or that when we follow you, Father, that we'll be persecuted. Those things may happen. But, Father, it happens only in your plan. And we trust you and in your goodness. Give us a heart to think like that, to act like that this week and in all the weeks to come as we await you in these last days. Thank you for the reminder this morning, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.